Thank you very much. It's very kind. And it's so lovely to see so many people here today. I'm really, really touched. Uh, and thank you to Mark for your introduction. And also thank you for everything that you've done to help me over the years. You're not alone in that. Liz, sitting at the back over there, has been a real tower of strength in explaining things to me as well. And um, you'd be pleased to know you're both acknowledged in the PhD, and I trust that you'll be in the acknowledgements for the novel as well when that happens. So, but yes, great deal of help that I received. And uh, my aim today is to take you through a range of different um, processes and directions that I took uh, as Mark has already mentioned, uh, it's a novel and a PhD. Um, and so I'd, I'd be, um, I'm going to talk to you today about the processes of the research that I und undertook, um, both physical, geographical, um, and also use of archive, for example, uh, and the important role that that played. But also, um, the PhD was a novel, and I'll explain that a little bit more shortly as well. So if there's anybody here who's actually interested in the process of creative writing, if there's anybody who's um, got a hankering to um, write for themselves and you have questions, then, then please do feel free to ask those as well. Um, I very much would like you, if you have a question, if there's anything I say, feel free to interrupt me. Um, so this isn't a, a talk where I want to save the questions to the end. If, if there's something where you think, ooh, I'd like to know more about that, then I'm absolutely fine with that. Um, I can talk for England on this subject, so you won't put me off. <laughs> so anyway, so that's, that's where to start. But as, well, where to start actually was part of the problem. Um, and as Mark has already said, I started with an MA. Um, I'd been a teacher for 15 years. I felt it was, it was very important to me, having taught English literature, for a great deal of my life, um, to find out if I could actually write myself. You know, as, an, as a teacher, uh, GCSE and A-level, you spend a lot of time teaching students how to analyse other people's writing, how to show them how writing is wonderful and inspiring and how, how the structure of it leads the reader through a text. And I thought, well, okay, can I do the same thing? It was a bit scary, actually. Uh, so I applied to do an MA, which was a, a nice routine um, in creative writing at the University of Kent. And I was accepted onto that course, which was wonderful. And uh, I submitted my ideas, which I shall refer back to my notes in a minute so that I can tell you where it started. But I applied to do this, this MA, and within three months, Amy, who was my supervisor, it was a research master's, so they were, I didn't attend lectures, everything was elective and, and research-based. Uh, and Amy was my supervisor guiding me through my process. And within three months, she said to me, I think you should be doing the whole novel, and I'd like to be your supervisor to do it. Now, people told me that that was quite a big thing, actually, to have your supervisor, somebody come to you and say, I'd like to be your supervisor. It's usually the other way around, and as a PhD student, you're running around trying to find somebody who is willing to take you through the process for whatever it is that you're writing. So I was, I was really touched by that. Um, so that tells you a little bit about where I started in, in terms of the process of study. But when I originally put in my proposal, um, I put a title on this slide that says, On the Limits of Knowing. 
Uh, now, that's actually the title of the document that I submitted to go with the novel for my PhD. And so my interest has been um, quite extensively in the idea of how far can we ever truly know anything? Um, and the use of history, the uses we make of history within um, our own studies, within our own research. Um, and I've got quite a few anecdotes that I could I could say about the way that that process sort of plays out. So an exploration for me was on knowing, and that's where I started. I believed that there was going to be a journey of uh, knowledge of self within the novel um, for the central character, um, the modern central character. I'd always envisaged a dual narrative novel with a historical part to it, but for the central character, my original idea was that she was going to be on a metaphorical and literal pilgrimage of her own, and I was going to use the Pilgrim's Way. That was where I started. Uh, that was what I actually submitted. And so I actually began with walking. Uh, and that was, that was, if you like, the first stage. Set out from Westminster Abbey, not all in one go, you'll be pleased to hear, but in sort of 13 to 15 mile sections and started to walk, because I thought if I, can, if I can tread in people's footsteps, that's going to bring me closer to them. Uh, and it actually sort of underlines the importance of the, of the research process, really. Um, but it also changed things quite dramatically along the way. Um, there's a huge value to good research in the production of a historical novel. I don't know whether anybody here is a historical novel fan. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, so don't, don't worry. But um, there's an amount of research that needs to create something that one of the um, critics that I was particularly interested in when I was, um, when I was writing um, said, it's the historical concreteness of atmosphere. Uh, and so that sense that you enable whoever is reading your writing, to inhabit a world and feel completely at home in it, to be able to identify what, um, what the people are going through and at least to understand it because there's no jarring moments. Now that's a big ask, actually. When you think about it, writing in the 21st century, to try and inhabit not just the geographical location of somebody from the past, but also the way they thought, the way that other people perceived them. All of these things are really, really difficult to convey. Uh, but nonetheless, that was a starting point for me, that it was important that the research provided a very, very solid um, background. So I mentioned the fact that as I walked, pilgrimage was one of my routes. So physical journeying was one of my routes into my writing. But it wasn't the only one. Uh, and as Mark has mentioned already, the archive and visiting Kent History and Library Centre and going into that wonderfully air-conditioned search room, which sometimes when you're in there actually gets quite cold. Um, and remembering to take a jacket or a cardigan or something like this, because you might need to wear something. That is, provided you're allowed to take it in and nobody thinks you're going to put something in your pockets on the way out. But so... I really loved it in the search room, and I, I expect there are some people within this um, audience here who can identify that as well. I found it a great place to write. 
I found it a wonderful place to engage with the reality of the world that I was creating. And actually, being in, a, in the archive environment and starting to look at certain documents, basically I went for documents that were as old as possible. And I'll fill you in a little more on Mark and Liz's role in, in um, helping me with these things in a little while. But I started to look for old papers and I was fascinated, not, I'm doing that, not by the touch, we can't touch them, at least minimally, but the sense of a piece of parchment or a piece of vellum and the shape that the pen made on the page, the stroke of the ink, sometimes fat, sometimes thin as it's flourished. And so all of these things started to come alive to me. And it's probably worthwhile me mentioning at this moment that I am not a histor historian. And so, in fact, going, going backwards, I didn't even do history O-level. Uh, and that was partly because I have to say I had a, a very dry experience of history back in the dim and distant past, which basically involved writing a whole load of dates on a blackboard uh, and then being told to copy them down and you'd be tested on them the following week. And it put me off, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, but I love it now and I have thoroughly enjoyed, I mean, historical novels in particular have been something that I have thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and find, I believe, personally, that from a well-written historical novel, incidentally, you can find out just as much about life as you can from a document, uh, which will bring me back to something that um, one of my examiners said to me later on, which I'm actually quite proud of, so I'd like to share it. Um, so, as I said, I called up the oldest documents that the strong room had to offer, really, and I was fortunate enough to be able to take a trip into the strong room one day as well. And, and that was an amazing experience. As Mark said, I really did. I did an internship here. Once I'd immersed myself in the archive, actually realised that the vehicle for my modern character was going to be to make her an archivist. Now, again, if there are any writers within the room... I can remember being told by people standing up in front of a crowd at a literary festival or something like that, if they're asked a question about the direction of their story and um, how you decided what was going to come next, what the characters were going to do and this type of thing. And I can remember somebody saying, well, I didn't know to be truthful. I let the characters take me where they wanted to take me. And at the time, I thought, that's what a load of rubbish. I thought, you know, this is a fictional construct. You're making these characters up. Surely they're just doing what you're, you're putting them into. True, in part. Because I subsequently discovered I never intended Evelina, the modern character, to be an archivist at the beginning. But being in the archive created a natural environment for me to be able to find the details that I, that I wanted. Uh, and actually... The research that I did created so much of the plot, which is why I've got one or two documents up here to show you today. Because um, without finding and calling those documents up, there are certain directions that the novel would not have taken because I wouldn't have known about them. Uh, and so that's, that was a really um, helpful and important aspect for me.
So I work shadowed a range of departmental roles. Mark very kindly instructed me in some aspects of court Latin. I'm really sorry, Mark, I can't remember it now. <laughs> but the words look very nice on the page. Um, but Evelina did have a knowledge of it in the book. Liz introduced me. Liz very kindly introduced me to manorial registers and showed me how um, this was an invaluable source of supply for talking about the life of a particular um, manor and the information that we could glean from those about the life of the characters. Now, interestingly, also, Liz, you'll be um, interested to hear this, but also it provided me with the fact that, of course, there's an awful lot of fines recorded in manorial documents. So, so-and-so, Thomas, let's say Thomas Wyatt. I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he was always very, very good. So, Thomas... Um, his cow was allowed to go onto somebody else's pasture and there was a fine for that. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Now, that presented quite a view of the third estate, the peasantry. Uh, and it's often really quite difficult to get beyond that as, as a view of people living in periods where um, the feudal system was operating. Uh, and as I say, I was going for old stuff here. I was looking for information that, that took me back in time. Uh, and so I, I began to piece together. I was thinking, hang on. If all we know about them is their fines, what were their lives like? And so that led me in a different direction. And I started to, um, if you like, wonder how I might incorporate that type of information. So... Details from documents were used to develop the life of the modern character, but they also led to a number of exposures to things for me that I would not have thought of before. And the second and very important thing that Liz introduced me to was a paste down. Um, I don't know, I maybe should explain what paste downs are um, for those of you who don't know, but they would be a piece of um, manuscript taken po possibly from a prayer missal, a book which um, was used by a priest to record the order of the mass and the responses, etc. Um, it could have been from um, a work of philosophy. It could have been literally anything, to be truthful. It could even have been Bibles in some cases as well. There are fragments of Bibles. Now, these people were very pragmatic. Uh, and there are two ways of looking at it. You could say that come the um, Reformation, a lot of this material was, was deemed to be uh, unacceptable. So um, it, was, it was trashed, it's destroyed effectively. But parchment, vellum were expensive materials. And so the pages were often used to line other books. Um, and so this actually spoke to my interest in the idea of what we know and what we do with history. And so the idea of a pace down, having had this tremendous value in its own right as the book it came from, probably revered, um, and then used to line a court book. We have a court book over there, um, in which we'll have a little look at uh, in a minute. Um, 
with, with a story attached to it, which I shall go into as well. But so the, the, these, these pieces of parchment or vellum were used to line other books. They could have just been records. They could have been accounts. They could have been lists of rents, paid and unpaid and things like this. But they made a very nice insert. They no longer carried to the owner of whatever book they were used inside the value that they had when they were um, a work of devotion. And so, as I say, that really spoke to what, where I was trying to go, this idea of the way that we overlay history with a new direction. We make use of it in a way that suits ourselves, ultimately. That could be very pragmatic, as I say. It could be from the point of view of just, um, well, that's expensive, I'm not going to chuck it away. But it could also just show us that we, we, we manipulate things a bit. We, we change things dependent upon... Um, our circumstances and how attitudes have changed. Um, and that was certainly true for me of a couple of, of different things. Now, one of the uh, other documents that was really important to me um, was the Twisden papers. And within, there are, there are a lot of documents within the Twisden paper collection. But one of the documents that I looked at was a small diary dating back to around about 16, middle, middle of the 16th, 17th century. Um, and it was the notes of Roger Twiston. Um, and he was writing about recipes for things. He was writing about his views on the clergy. Uh, he had lots of ideas about how the local priest should be operating, which he was constantly writing in letters, um, and a number of other things that he wrote down, which was made really interesting reading, but at the same time, this little diary had a paste down inside it. Um, and it was one of the, if you like, one of the ways that got me into um, thinking about the way that these paste downs were used. So, they were very important to me. And it was actually archive research, because you're probably wondering why I've got a title up there that says Dode, and I haven't actually mentioned the word yet. Um, I will ask this question. How many people are familiar with Dode? Lots of you. So that's good to know. And uh, Doug is here today with us, which is great, and we've had many conversations about it. He's been another person who's been a real help to me uh, in my research, and uh, I really am indebted to his knowledge. So this was another example of the way that research led me somewhere. I didn't know I was going to write about Dode at the beginning. Um, and Mark, perhaps if we could just have, I've got a, I've got a few shots of Dode, mainly my own. That one is not my own but I'm fairly certain it's copyright free, because I checked. Uh, you so, can have it anyway. Thank you. <laughs> so this is the place where the novel is set. Um, I will do, I'll give you a little bit of background on it in a minute. Um, would you like to just run through some of the slide, all the pictures for me? Mark, thank you. So that was my own picture. I stayed there. Uh, I did a weekend there so that I could sort of inhabit the place a little myself. 
stayed in the smaller of the two lodges. And uh, that was the view from the veranda when I was sitting on the sitting outside in the sunshine. It was a, certainly a lovely weekend while I was there. So, uh, and that gives you a little bit of an idea of the isolation of Dode as well, for those of you who maybe haven't seen it before. The building stands on a small hill uh, and is surrounded by trees and greenery. Um, and it's a beautifully peaceful setting. Anybody who goes there, I'm sure, would agree that it's a... A, a peaceful setting, contemplative, um, and no noise of motorways, and only the odd Spitfire. Thanks, Mark. Will. So this is this is another view. So again, I just wanted to sort of give you a sense of the tranquility of the place. Really, um, there is um, there are some standing stones down there. Um, if you want to know about those, you can ask Doug. Uh, but. Uh, Yes, and, and just the, the sense of a, a, a rise behind the land. And, and as I say, you just, you just feel completely enclosed and at peace when you're there. Um, but uh, I discovered Dode in a very strange way. Um, I didn't use just Kent History and Library Centre for my archives. Sorry, guys. But I did also use a couple of other... Um, a, couple of, a couple of other things which I access largely online, to be honest. Uh, and one of those, um, through the Rochester Archive, um, was another list of, it was plaintiffs in court, uh, people who were um, asking for fines and, and for people to be sued for non-payment of something and this type of thing. And one of the people who was asking for his... Um, complaint to be heard was a gentleman called Geoffrey of Dode and I've never found anything else about Geoffrey of Dode it was almost one of those passing things to the extent that I sometimes wonder whether I even made him up but he brought me to Dode because I thought oh Dode I know of Dode uh, in actual fact my son-in-law used to be in a band um, and they wrote a song about Dode, and that was one of the, one of the ways that I knew it. Um, and I was interested by that fact. I just thought, oh, that rings a bell. And the other very key thing for me, you, you know how sometimes something really resonates with you. So Dode, I knew of the name, and it really drew me to it. But the second thing, Geoffrey was my father's first name. He was never known as Geoffrey. Everybody called him Trevor. Uh, but he was, he was Geoffrey. Uh, and those two things together led me, serendipity, we could call it, led me to a point of decision. I thought, this is where I want to go. And so that led me into looking for more archive material. I was back here calling up anything that I could to find out about Dode. There is very little information, very little information, which is very interesting because from a novelist's perspective and a story weaver like Doug, it enables us to weave a story around a place and think, well, it could be like this. Um, but there is very little information, as I say. Uh, and I found one document which... Um, I'm not sure if it's the next slide, actually. It's not the next slide. The internal. Oh, the internal, thank you. It's a bit blurry, that one. It was, uh, 
again, I was trying to find something that I was allowed to copy because I, my own pictures were woefully inadequate. And uh, so, uh, but yes, if you move on to the next one. So I just scanned, this is a photocopy, um, but the original, original document is literally three hand typed back in the days when people typed things on typewriters. Um, and it's entitled Dode. Uh, it was in a folder with other items to do with Paddlesworth, uh, Parish of Paddlesworth. Um, but because I was looking, I was using Dode as my, as my keyword by this point, this was one of the things that came up. Uh, and it told me about uh, the fact that in, I think it was in 1953, uh, and it was talking about uh, this, uh, two enclosures of arable land situate at Wrangling Lane in the parish of Paddlesworth, known as Dowds, um, Dode as we know it now with the ruins of the ancient chapel thereon, containing seven acres, naught rood, zero roods, 37 perches, with possession, dating probably from the 12th century. Um, we can sort of date it fairly accurately, uh, based upon the fact that it doesn't appear in Doomsday, uh, but it is mentioned, um, is it 200 years later or 100 years later, I think, in Textus Refensis, that's right. So we, kn we know that it wasn't around, as I say, in Doomsday. Uh, and at this point in time, it was bought by a gentleman called George Arnold, and it was, a, it was pretty well a ruin. Uh, and so, again, it, it sort of built into my, my thinking about, you know, building something up from its foundations. And I have to sort of... Um, refer back to Doug again on the grounds of the fact that, of course, those of you who are aware of Dode now will know that that's exactly what he did when he took it on uh, and created the building that we see now from what it was before. So I found Dode and little by little um, I... moved into its story and so as I mentioned before there's nothing there now but a church and um, deconsecrated in 1367 that's the right date isn't it Doug because I'm not looking at my notes thank you and it was deconsecrated in 1367 but I think it was in around about 1352 that they said that poor Dode had no more registered inhabitants there was no congregation at the church. Now the Black Death, 1347 to 49, was, was sort of 48, 49 really, uh, was the high point. Uh, and so it was a fair leap to make an assumption that Dode could have been a plague village, a village that was actually um, wiped out completely by, by the Black Death. I have to say at this point that there isn't actually evidence on the site of buildings. Um, but that said, I wrote it anyway, because we have to leap, don't we? Um, and so that was, that was finding Dode. Geoffrey, uh, I've mentioned, um, and I will say that my Geoffrey of Dode is completely fictional. But what I sought to do was create the life of Dode, and I discovered him through the modern archivist. Uh, and that was, if you like, the, the way that the plot developed. 
Now, my supervisor, Amy Sackville, was always kind enough to say, this is an organic process. And organic is basically a tidy euphemism for, I didn't really know where I was going until I found things. Uh, but I've realised that I'm not, I'm not an overt plotter. Uh, and I will allow research to take the lead and to, and to create things for me that I wouldn't otherwise have thought about. Uh, so in a way, the story came last. You know, all of these bits that I've tried to put together and show you how they work, the story came last. And so I use things like the Wealdon Down Living Museum because I went down there and looked at um, buildings that are again, recreated in as close an approximation as possible to the peasant dwellings. Um, and also, actually, one uh, boar hunt is there. I don't know whether anybody's familiar. Does anybody know the Wheel and Down? It's where the repair shop is filmed. So I was very excited about that when we went down relatively recently and saw the big sign outside, because they were filming, so it was outside the barn. Jay Blades waved at me. <laughs> So, boar hunt was really useful because I based Jeffrey's house on that. Um, and just standing inside these buildings. But I want to come back to this idea of overlaying and what we create. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm a big believer in, in, if you like, putting your hand on something and, and knowing the age of it, feeling the lives that have passed by it, for example. But I was also very aware of the fact that what we do with these things is we infill them. Some of those beams get woodworm and have to be replaced. Um, the wattle and daub disappears and is replaced with something new. And so what we do in all cases is a hopeful reconstruction. Uh, and that's the way I've tried to think about, if you like, the process of writing historical fiction as well as a hopeful reconstruction. Um, I like to travel hopefully. Uh, I was a bit surprised to arrive, to be honest, in the end. After seven years, it almost feels quite unbelievable to have got to the end of a process. Uh, and I think working my way through it, I was never, I could never really allow myself to think of it as, a, I, I always thought of it as a PhD rather than a novel. So when you were talking in the way that you did about, you know, a PhD and a novel, Yes, it was a novel, but that was never really how I, I never let myself think about it in that way. Uh, it was the research process and, um, that I really enjoyed. So, we do sort of take history a bit sometimes and bend it to our will. Uh, and we do, if you like, write the story that maybe we want to hear. That was something that I was thinking about. When I talk about the limits of knowing, each and every one of us has a different story to tell. Our lives are different. And so if my niece Becky, I've just happened to catch your eye, who was invaluable in the editing process for me, were to write Dode, it would have a different overlay on it. Because Becky's life is different. She's got different, different experiences that she would overlay it with. And so often our treatment of history comes from our personal perspective as well. And no matter how much, it's easy to say this because I wrote a novel, so it's a work of fiction. So no matter how much I strive for authenticity, there's always going to be that tinge of something else over the top. 
But before I finish, and I will, I will stop talking, um, I just want to take you to, if I could um, have a look at the, the Boethius, actually, Mark. I'm going to go, going to go with that. Um, because I... That's lovely. Thank you. And the lettering. Is it okay if I pick it up and show it? Now, there's two documents here. I probably won't pick that one up and show you, but I do want to show you this. Um, inside here is that. Now, the, the large brown folder on the desk is a court book relating to the manor of Cuxton, uh, and it contains rents, tithes, um, records, accounting, and all of that type of thing. Um, and it was one of the things that I, I called up in my early stages of research. And um, I was very interested in it. I've, as, as I've mentioned earlier on, I was very interested in, if you like, the artistic shape of the writing on the page as well. Um, but when I called it up, the... Do you want me to show it? That one. Yep, that one. Yes. So when I called that document up, it said with a paste down fragment inside it. And where Marks shows, it's, it's, it's been restored in a very, very detailed way. I, I spent quite a bit of time with that document, actually. Um, but the, there was a mention of a paste down. That restoration, I fit, if I'm not much mistaken, it was, it was carried out in around about the 1980-something, I think. And uh, it said it contained a paste down. Well, when I looked at it, it didn't. Um, and it actually led to a little bit of a discovery session because we didn't know, I say we, but the, um, dare I say it, the paste down was not quite that easy to locate. Uh, and so we, it, it led to a little bit of a search party, and I can remember being told, we found it. Um, and it probably wasn't in, just probably wasn't in the right strong room shelf or something like that. Uh, and I, oh my goodness. That's for me holding it up. I'm so sorry. Now, when I found it, yes. Right, so when I found it, that um, beautiful illuminated letter there was one of the things that caught my eye. It, it's, a, it's a fragment from Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. I'm not going to take you into um, the details surrounding that. Um, but this was a wonderful opportunity. I'm not going to open it because I feel nervous enough about the fact that I've just dropped it on the floor. Um, but written, I don't know whether you can see, hang on. My fingers are very dry. Written down the left right-hand margin, it says um, Manarium de Cuxtain, 1584. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much. And so that was another example of a paste down being used Obviously, it was inside the um, court book. I, I don't know. I would, I've used a leap of imagination here, but I would imagine that 
at the time, somebody recognised this and realised that there was a significant value to it that should be preserved separately. Um, but when you actually look at that document, I'm going to put it down now. <laughs> when you actually look at that document, you can see that somebody at a later date, 1584, has written over something that was produced in the 1200s and said, this is, this is, all, this is a, a book for the Manor of Cuxton. Uh, and that's, that's what this job is now. So this is no longer a fragment, or if you like. It's no, it's no longer Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. It's the inside front cover of a Cuxton Manor Court book. Uh, and so that really sort of brought it home to me, that sense of the way that we use things and the way that maybe we treat things from the past as well. Um, and that said... We can respect this as it is now, but when the scribe who wrote out that copy of Boethius's words would never have imagined that that's what was going to happen to his writing after that, that it would be used in this, in this way, just as a, as a flyleaf, if you like, inside, inside um, what was considered to be a far more important work at that period of time. And so, really, these details are the things that fed into my narrative. I was able to use them. I actually used, um, not many people, there's a couple of people who have read my work so far, but not many people have, because it's, uh, the, the PhD is only just finished, just, deposit, just deposited. Uh, and so my next job, I've been encouraged to look for an agent and a publisher by a number of people. So I think I perhaps have the confidence to do that now, which I perhaps didn't before. Um, but I really wanted to respect the past as far as I could and to look at the ways that we use this information um, and, if you like, develop from it. Because in actual fact, that is such a wonderful thing to have with or without that writing on it. That, you know, that, that creates another layer of history in the same way as a reconstruction of Doge creates a new layer of history. Um, and the houses at the Wealdon Down and Living Museum, they create a window that is as authentic as it can be, but maybe isn't absolutely the real thing. But that's, I think, what we're, what we're here for. Um, so, I guess respect is a key word for me. I wanted to treat my characters with respect. I wanted to treat the medieval peasantry with respect. And there is a whole story built around the families in Dode uh, and eventually leading towards the Black Death. There's no spoilers in that. We know what happened in the Black Death. Uh, and the tragedies that, that people had to live through. I was quite, I was, I was quite um, one of the ideas that underpinned my work for me was the book of Job uh, and the idea of suffering uh, and how we relate to suffering, things that we don't understand. And taking it back into the medieval world actually gave me a slightly different perspective on that too. Uh, so yes, not all the material, not all the use of the materials is true. I should add that caveat at the end. 
um, the, I use that idea of writing something over something else as a fictional um, plot device to move the plot forward. So it's not that, something else. Uh, but uh, hopefully it makes the story that much more interesting. So as I said, I'm hopefully going to move on towards publication. Um, and that would be amazing. We will see um, what happens next. But I'd just like to say thank you so much for listening. And nobody's put a hand up. I wonder if you have any questions that you might like to ask. Yes? I'm not clear as to the relationship between your novel and your PhD. They are one and the same. So presumably you didn't put any fiction in your PhD? No, the PhD is, um, it is fiction. It's, the PhD title is The Novel as Research. Oh, right, I see. So maybe I should, have, I should have made that clear at the beginning, <laughs> shouldn't I, really? So creative writing um, is a discipline at universities yes. now and um, can be carried out at PhD level with a complete novel being the end product. There is an accompanying, there is an accompanying academic document which, if you like, situates your work. Yes. Did you find with the pandemic that you had sort of, you know, art imitating life, life imitating art kind of thing going on? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the pandemic made me reflect on things in a slightly different way. I, I should say that the central character, I, I don't need too many spoilers, but the central character's mother is in hospital at the start of the novel. Uh, and I did, at one point, um, go back and rewrite a few thousand words where I thought maybe I should bring the pandemic in, but then rejected that idea. Again, in fact, I, I changed the date that the novel was set uh, so that it, it draws to a close just before the pandemic starts, uh, which I, I, I wanted to sort of, if you like, leave that illusion in the reader's mind. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and so, of course, the, the, you know, the Black Death and, and the similarities between um, even, even the trajectory that the virus took across the world um, is very similar between the pandemic that we've just lived through uh, and that, that particular incidence of the Black Death. So, yeah, so I did, but I didn't include any of that material. Well, it didn't make me think I could do something like this, but I can tell you that one of my um, novelists who's right up there is Hilary Mantel, um, and I read The Wolf Hall. In fact, I never, I have never yet read the third book, and I'll explain why. Uh, it's basically because I was so invested in Thomas Cromwell, and it's a little bit like The Black Death, isn't it? You know what's going to happen. That's the thing with writing historical fiction. You can't get away from these fairly major things that are going to happen. Uh, and so I knew that in the third book, he was going to be executed. Oh, I don't want to read that. I like him too much. <laughs> so, but the reason that I, I, I say Hilary Mantel is because I so admire her style of writing. Completely immersive. And in fact, in the academic document that I wrote, I, I quote from her... Um, that historical concreteness of atmosphere isn't from her. Um, that's from a, a, a work on um, 
literary criticism, but she said pretty well the same thing. You know, if, if you can't make your characters, you can't make your reader inhabit the world of your characters, it will never be true. Uh, and so definitely, I, I would say she's been somebody that I have thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I've read, I should have thought about this before, uh, but I read a number of other uh, works along the way, and uh, I can't think of the names of the authors now, they go out of my head, but it's definitely Hilary Mantel was my, was my major influence in writing. There is one thing you keep saying that you've said, and I've read I read it when I went online to sort of find out about dope. That it was the the, the, church, the church was deconsecrated. I was under the impression you can't deconsecrate a church. So how would it have been deconsecrated? Well, that is a good question because I can't <laughs> I can't answer it to you. But all I can say is that every piece of research that I read told me that that's what happened to it, and I think it's to do with the fact that because no services were held there. Mm. Also, um, the document that I showed you earlier on uh, talked about the fact that Dover was a church uh, and there was a, some evidence that there being a, a congregation because of the uh, fact that the church paid, I think, nine pence a year for Holy Prison to Rochester. Uh, and so that was stopped. Uh, implying that there was nobody there. So, um, in terms of the use of the church, it ceased to be a building of worship, uh, and I can certainly tell you that. But I did, I did see in, in some of the research that I used that deconsecrated was a word mm. that was used as well. So when they didn't get any money, they went, ah, do you know what? Nothing <laughs> 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 to do with us anymore. We can't get any money off you, so that's it. Oh, but no, I have been told that you cannot deconsecrate okay. well, that's, that's by, by people. I'd like to have a wonder about that, unless anybody else wants to have a thought as well. But I, I think it's quite common these days. I used to live near one So many churches have acquired a new use. And I think there is a process. The, the local ordinary, the bishop, will. Yeah. Do a service to do the necessary. Yeah, the reason why I'm saying it is because um, I used to I used to volunteer at, um, at Iton, and um, the chapel in there. They always people always used to come up and go, is it is it still consecrated? And we sort of went, don't know. Anyway, somebody sort of uh, a lot more intelligent than I did apparently went into it, and they said actually no. Um, it's never been deconsecrated because you can't deconsecrate and actually although there isn't a service there held every year the, um, uh, the Collie Fergusons who are known in the sort of Gravesend area um, they actually had um, uh, christenings there and they have had sort of services in the sort of the time that the National Trust have actually held it for the last 30 years um, and that's where that's why I'm sort of like oh um, you know, you keep coming up with this deconsecrated. Well, you know, to my say, somebody a lot more intelligent than I did sort of went into it and said, actually, and sort of said, actually, you can't deconsecrate. So. You, you, you might can deconsecrate <laughs> many churches, and they are yeah. turned into residential dwellings. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. As far as Dover, the, the lady behind has a, has a point. Um, the um, decree of Bishop Trellick on the 1st of May 1367 actually never uses the word deconsecration. 
Um, the, the term is abandonment, um, but as a result of abandonment, dope is considered to be deconsecrated. But the actual decree um, never actually uses the word deconsecrated. But it's curiouser and curiouser comes to mind. <laughs> Sorry, thanks for that. Don't right, yeah, I've been thinking of three churches which don't know whether they've been deconsecrated. One is certainly not a church at the bottom of Tundridge Road, uh, Bower Terrace, it's now a block of flats. And then there's a church in Farley, which doesn't exist, but the graveyard exists. And then in Liverpool, there, it became a church became a furniture store before it was pulled down.
TV film some years ago about Tutankhamun, mm -hmm. where one of the characters says to another, you'll be okay. I promise you I never did that to Um You said that there are parts of your book that weren't true, which I thought was an interesting way of using the word, because sure, it's not historically true, but do you think at least you got somewhere towards a true portrayal of characters and events at that time? And, um, I, th I think I did. Um, in, in fact, you've, you've reminded me nicely of something that I was told, um, which is uh, my ex, my, my internal examiner, so he works at the University of Kent. Uh, he was the lead examiner. He's also a specialist in medieval history. Honestly, I was terrified. <laughs> because I just, not being a historian, being a, a student of literature, I, I thought to myself, you're going to say, well, you know, it's a nice story, but they wouldn't have done this, this is wrong, this is, etc., etc. Uh, and, I, and I really have used an awful lot, there's some extensive detail on farming, for example, uh, and quite a variety of uh, details of daily life. Uh, and when I had my um, Viva Voce at the end, the oral examination, which if anybody's been through it, it's quite a grueling experience, uh, where you defend your thesis, one of the things he said to me at the end, what was apart from the fact that he loved it, he said that um, as a result, he said the contribution I'd made to an, an understanding of, of medieval um, life at this point in time was, was huge. And he would never look at the peasantry in the same way again. And he was a man who was, who was looking, to, he said, I'm so used to looking top down. And, and seeing, if you like, through the manorial records, seeing, seeing the misdemeanours, the fines, and, and, and that type of thing that, that we have of ordinary life. And he said, I made him think about it in a completely different way. And, and he was very pleased to tell me that, it, in his opinion, it was authentic. So, so yes, I, I feel that I tried to create as much as possible of uh, the life of the time. Uh, and yes, it's, it's interesting you brought that up as well, because a work of fiction by its very nature is not true. Uh, but my, I, I, I adapted, as I mentioned about, about this particular fragment, I adapted my use of actual existing documents, names, etc. Um, in order to fit the story. At one point Amy said to me, because I was research, research, research the whole way, and she said to me, at some point you are just going to have to make it up. <laughs> I think, yeah, from a, from my perspective, Jen, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the talk. Um, I, uh, I kind of know what you mean after just having been to the Stonehenge and its World Exhibition at the British Museum, and looking at the way archaeologists have to make a lot, perhaps out of very little. So you know, a lot of the um, for a historian looking at the evidence that they were using. It, it, it just made me realise a little bit uh, how a, a historical fiction writer works, particularly if it's working in the Middle Ages. Um, I'd also like to thank you for helping us archivists think about ourselves a bit differently. We, we're used to being, and some of my, co uh, my normal colleagues over there, um, uh, used to being in the background and, and you know, taking a back seat as the researchers do their, do their thing. 
publish their books and we're not you know we used to be in that scene but not heard if you like but you know you've you've actually studied us you've put us in a, in a, in a way put us, put us centre stage and, and it's probably good for us to, to consider who we are and what we do uh, in that in that third person kind of way so I think you've, you've made a big contribution to our own history too <laughs>